Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 592 with my guest, Jesse Finkelstein. I am Paul Gilmartin, and you did not wind up here by accident. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're here because this is a place... (laughs) This is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, all the bullshit, all the crazy marbles bouncing around in our skull. I am not a therapist. This is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes. Somebody asked, they said, you always say uh, that you're a jackass that tells dick jokes. Uh, Why don't you tell a few dick jokes? Well, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that there's some, some lame dick jokes in there, peppered peppered, seasoned throughout the episodes. Uh, This episode airs on Friday, May 20th, which is, uh, most of you will probably not hear this in town, in time, those of you that live in Minneapolis, but uh, doing a a live podcast recording tonight, Friday, May 20th at Sisyphus Brewery in, uh, in Minneapolis, and really looking forward to it. All right, uh, let's read a couple surveys before we get to the interview with Jesse. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Emma, and uh, she writes, I fear tomorrow, next month, next year. The Trump cult members are taking women's rights right now. They will take gay rights, civil rights, social security, and my teacher's retirement. I live in a red state that hates all citizens as far as I can tell. And uh, Emma is in her 60s. Um, it is a a, a, uh, a divisive time that is, you know, I like the podcast to be as inclusive as possible. I try uh, to avoid um, saying things that are unnecessarily divisive, but it things are really fucked up right now. And you know, they talk about climate change. Uh, in the future, there's going to be climate refugees, people changing states, moving even to different countries um, as climate change gets worse. And, and fuck, it seems like we're going to have policy refugees in the United States, uh, especially if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. There's going to be so many red states that will outlaw abortion. I think some people mistakenly think if Roe v. Wade gets overturned that abortion will be illegal throughout the United States. No, it just means that it's up to the states to decide uh, whether it can be legal or not. But it's fucking scary. The don't say gay 
bill in Florida? What in the motherfucking fuck? This is from the uh, Ask Paul Anything survey. And, uh, oh, this is also from, uh, from Emma. And uh, she writes, I see a counselor and we are not a fit. I had severe mental health needs before the pandemic, but now I just stay with a counselor who does not help me so that I can see someone. Uh, I guess that means does not help me so that I can see someone. Uh, I need a good psychiatrist for possible work on meds, but I also need a new counselor. Um, I've tried online therapy, but I prefer to go see someone in person. Any ideas? Uh, well, there are uh, you know a variety of different ways. I think going to see a, a, a psychiatrist first might be a good call because they might be able to recommend, um, given you know as they evaluate you and if there are any needs they think are specific to your issues or struggles, they might suddenly think of a of a counselor that's a good fit for you. So. Um, the other way is to talk to people who you know are in therapy, ask them if they like their counselor and say, you know, would you recommend them? And if that counselor isn't taking new clients, um, call that call that counselor and say, can you recommend anybody? So um, that that those would be my my thoughts. This is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by Anxious Annie, and she writes, For 12 years, I've been holding on to the hurt that a friend caused me. For six years, I have suffered from great physical... Hold on. Yes. From great uh, physical limitations and pain caused by an accident in which I broke my back. For four years, I've been trapped by mental anguish, complete with isolation, crippling social anxiety, phobia and grief from my past life. But last night, I crossed the threshold, and this is all in caps. I went out to dinner with old friends from college. Now, this may seem like a relatively simple and normal activity, but for me, it was a monumental event, an act of courage that seemed insurmountably difficult for so long. What I thought would happen in crossing this threshold was that it would be a night filled with anxiety and awkwardness, that my body would hurt so much the next day that I'd barely be able to move, and that it would only serve to solidify my belief that a, quote, normal life with good friends is for other people, but not for me. But what actually happened was that I had a deeply healing and fun night. The friend that hurt me over a decade ago was at the dinner. But upon seeing her, I felt no anger or betrayal, just love and relief. I'd missed her so much. I'd missed all the good memories that had been overshadowed by the hurt. We hugged and cried and shared an appetizer. Maybe time does heal some wounds. On this happy night, I remembered a lot of things that I had forgotten I was capable of, a lot of things I had missed, like smiling and laughing until my face hurt like sitting in a straight-back chair for hours and not worrying too much about my back pain, like eating food that someone else has, had prepared and not worrying that I would get sick, like listening to the soft background music that the restaurant was playing on outdoor speakers and looking up at the tiny sparkling white lights draping the perimeter of the patio and feeling peaceful and full of gratitude, like being wrapped in the warmth of recipro reciprocal friendship and human connection like being able to crack open my fear just enough to let in some curiosity and love, 
and to feel like I actually do deserve these moments of happiness and peace, no matter how broken I have felt for so long. I just love that, man. I just love that. I love that you put the crystal ball down and you rolled the fucking dice. That is so hard to do when when we're in that place where we just want more of the same small life because it's predictable. Wow. I got so excited when I read this survey. Thank you so much for, for filling that out. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I have been going for years. My therapist, Heidi, helps me so much with uh, my lack of motivation, uh, my future tripping, kind of like the last survey, looking into the crystal ball and then basing my feelings on what I think is going to happen, and uh, and burnout. Burnout is a big issue, and it's, it's the focus of... Uh, Better helps a message this month. Um, a lot of times we think burnout can only happen at work, but it's not the only cause. A lot of times the roles that we pick with our friends or our family, we can get burned out on, uh, on doing that. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. And then finally, this is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Honor Rolls Our Lives. And uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? She writes, after several years of recovery work, I find myself admitting that I don't know shit. I thought I understood the messages of self-help. I always got great marks and reading comprehension. So I thought I'd read a book or a hundred books, but I have to admit... I didn't know how to incorporate any of it. 
I didn't know I was in a codependent relationship. I didn't know I tended to stalk people I was interested in. I didn't know how to stop reveling in and being caught up in intrusive thoughts. The list of stuff I, who thought I was pretty high-functioning, didn't seem to know despite being broke, depressed, and anxious, codependent, suicidal, and dissociated almost all the time. It's fascinating how sick I was. I knew I wasn't normal. I knew my childhood was dysfunctional. I knew I was a recovering alcoholic. But when I took the first step and admitted I didn't know anything except I was miserable and out of control from trying to make sense of pain, that that freed me to take steps to make better choices. I tell myself it's not my fault I didn't know how to be human, much less be an adult, but I'm better. I watched myself from outside my own body for nearly five decades. My ex-partner of 30 years still does seem to be living outside of himself, and it's not my fault. I can let him go learn his own shit. That's such a relief because he's a monumental fuck-up who hasn't learned to be himself yet. And I let go with love and a hopeful heart that he won't hurt himself. So I tell myself daily that I am teachable, curious and just a beginner your fear of death is your love of life in reverse i'm a kinky person i didn't want to be i'm I'm ashamed a sexual being deeply ashamed you are i want to live fucking depressed but how i can't do this anymore i will be uncomfortable so you will be comfortable is life just a series of perpetual losses you're not depressed we're black there is no real chance for intimacy we don't do that without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it marlon like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with Jesse Finkelstein. Uh, you're a doctoral uh, student. You're already a, a practicing clinician. Uh, LMFT? Uh, D. So Psy-D. doctor in... I, I will be done with my doctorate in clinical psychology, hopefully by the end of next year, 2023. Yes. Uh, Jesse has uh, created a game called uh, The Game of Real Life. Yeah. Getting it correct. That's the one. Um, which it's a brilliant idea and, uh, kudos for putting something out there that not only helps anybody understand the importance of trying to find the right tool for the right conflict, um, but especially helping people that suffer from, um, Borderline personality disorder, also now known as emotional dysregulation disorder. Uh, Such a stigmatized disorder, and it breaks my heart when I hear people flippantly just disregard the emotional volcano Mm -hmm. that people have to try to sit on that have borderline personality disorder. It is, you know, this has actually been pretty salient as I've been listening to sort of peripherally the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, 
court hearings. That's so funny. I thought the same thing. And the psychologist who, the forensic psychologist who uh, assessed Amber Heard um, spoke about borderline personality disorder in such sort of disparaging and stigmatizing terms, Mm -hmm. uh, referring to people with BPD as manipulative, as cruel. And it breaks my heart Mm -hmm. because... um, not only do I feel like those terms are inaccurate, no, I mean, and I would say, and this speaks to my background in dialectical behavior therapy, undialectical, mm-hmm. um, it really harms folks. It harms folks who have emotion dysregulation. Well, just to be fair, wouldn't, couldn't you objectively characterize her behavior as, at, at the very least, having a manipulative component um, is it that you object to characterizing her being as manipulative? So, okay, so you, those are two wonderful points. So the first thing is, and this is oftentimes the way that people will refer to folks with BPD as manipulative. Mm-hmm. And the response to that that I often give and the way that we think about in DBT is who's not manipulative? Each one of us are trying in ways both explicit and implicit, overt and covert, to get our needs met. So manipulative to me is not, it, it, it is, it has this sort of negative valence to it. And it's not really clear to me, like, what, what the function, like, you know, other than disparaging someone who is just trying, like all of us, to mm-hmm. suffer less. Right. Um, the second point that you really bring out, which I love, is that, there's a difference between describing someone's behavior and describing someone's person. Yes. There's a difference between saying that someone's behavior is ineffective, their behavior is cruel, versus describing them as cruel. Yes. Because the latter, there's no, way, there, there's no way to grow from. Right. It's saying that there's no hope for you. You're unchangeable. Mm-hmm. You were born that way. And, you know, it wasn't until I got into support groups and therapy that I began to realize it's all about tools. It's it all is about. all about tools. Mm-hmm. It's it's really just a, pro- a lifelong process of upgrading your tools. For those of us that were raised in homes where dealing with emotions uh, in a healthy manner was not modeled for us, we are sent into life with 50 conflicts a day mm-hmm. with a sledgehammer and, uh, you know, a, a jetpack to escape. And that's it. It's we explode or we shut down or we run. And we that's why I love dialectical behavior so much is the willingness to have a difficult conversation mm-hmm. at the right time mm-hmm. in the right tone of voice with the right words makes all the difference in the world. It's a scalpel. It's a laser beam. It's a, it's, it's amazing. It is. And, and what you described, many of us did not grow up with the tools to, (laughs) to really sit with our emotions. Yeah. To say that hurt my feelings to say, and, and, and not only that to communicate that to others, but to be willing to acknowledge that for ourselves, yes. to self-validate and say, oh, that hurts. Where does that hurt? If you've never said that before, that is is like taking all of your clothes off in a room full of strangers. It feels 
so exposed mm-hmm. and terrifying and like somebody is is you know especially with the culture nowadays of oh i'm sorry snowflake hmm. as if like everyone you know it is almost like a it's pejorative to acknowledge our vulnerability <laughs> and it is wild to me because i would say the greatest source of our suffering is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. Ah, that's so profound. That's so profound. It is, I mean, I see it in myself. I see it with the clients with whom I work. It is all of the attempts that we go about trying to avoid what we're experiencing, be it through, you know, substances, be it through, you know, overwork, whatever it is that causes our suffering. And we're just not educated. And the thing that's wonderful about DBT is that it offers very pragmatic, specific tools and skills to actually help you experience your emotions, which is profound. I think it should be taught in schools. Oh, like this should be part absolutely. of our curriculum. I mean, the fact that they, they're now teaching it to police officers mm-hmm. to de-escalate situations, if that doesn't tell you that this is a, an incredibly practical and important tool. Yes. Uh, so give us kind of a broad, um, let's first talk about uh, a borderline personality disorder. Do you, do you refer to it that or, or is emotional dysregulation disorder? You know, I, you know, the DSM continues to sort of refer to this constellation of symptoms as borderline personality disorder. I have my own qualms with all personality disorders as a sort of a diagnosis. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not super comfortable with it. And, you know, I'm obligated to, you know, from working with a client to diagnose them as such. So that or emotion dysregulation disorder, either one is good. Okay. Um, give us uh, a definition. I know it's probably yeah, yeah. hard to say what's the definition of it. Talk about some of the characteristics of it. Absolutely. So in the DSM, and, and I'm going to sort of qualify this because I'm speaking off the top of my head and thinking about sort of the terms that we use to assess, it's, it's, te- it's B- BPD is typically sort of represented by a constellation of symptoms. Um, oftentimes it's accompanied by sort of frantic efforts to a perceived abandonment. So fears that one is being abandoned. So frantic efforts to sort of maintain connection. Uh, it is accompanied by oftentimes self-harm and suicidal behaviors. Uh, under intense stress, folks with BPD oftentimes experience either intense paranoia or dissociation. Um, sometimes there are related sort of experiences of impulse control, so difficulty sort of regulating, you know, your sort of desires for either consuming substances or, you know, consumption broadly. Um, and I should say that, you know, I believe that around 1% to 2% of the population, you know, currently is estimated to have a diagnosis of BPD, and it's oftentimes what we refer to as comorbid with other diagnoses. i got to imagine PTSD is in there. No, that's what I was going to say. So PTSD, uh, substance use disorder. So it's oftentimes you see it coupled with other disorders as well. Uh, you know, I've read many people's surveys that they fill out where they describe what it's like to have BPD and the image that kind of uh, I picture when I see somebody who's in that survival mode describing what they're feeling and the actions that follow 
is somebody who is in a burning building and somebody saying, you know, why did you shove people around to get to the water hose? And and that is not to excuse their behavior that, you know, they have a responsibility to try to grow as a person and develop tools. But in that moment, um, I because I know what it's like to be in survival mode and to want to drink or do drugs or look at porn or play my video game for Mm -hmm. eight hours because I just can't handle being in my skin. And to me, BPD seems like that times 10. You know, I, in dialectical behavior therapy, so there is this fundamental sort of dialectic between acceptance and change. And oftentimes that's captured in the statement. We're all doing the best that we can and we can all do better. And we're all doing the best that we can in that we are doing the best that we can in any given moment, given what we know, given our biology, given what we've been taught. And so folks with BPD, like all of us, are just trying not to suffer. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that oftentimes, and this is the case with many of us, even for folks that don't have BPD, our efforts to reduce our suffering are often increase our suffering. It, it It's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Without help, so many of us wind up creating the very thing that we fear and that and that destroys us. And, and people who, who aren't familiar with BPD probably have no idea that inside that person, they just want love, safety, and acceptance. Like all of us. I have yet to meet any single person that's like, I just, I don't want to feel good. You know, who's, who's just like, I actively want to suffer. I have yet to meet some, every person, no matter how destructive the behavior seems to be, it serves a function. And oftentimes that function is to relieve some sort of pain. And folks with BPD, it's, you know, they're oftentimes referred to as emotional burn victims, that their emotional experience is just so raw that it's very easy for folks with BPD emotion dysregulation to go from zero to 10 Mm -hmm. in a matter of seconds. And so, you know, the way that we think of BPD and emotion dysregulation is sort of, you know, folks that experience emotions intensely for long periods of time, and it takes them a long time to go back to baseline. Mm. And, you know, in a society in which we're taught that at times emotions are unacceptable, where folks are shamed for having an emotion, having that intense experience is, to your point, so painful. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really, it's really challenging for folks. So uh, dissociating, uh, PTSD. Um, what, what are some of the things that we haven't mentioned that are in the constellation of symptoms? So, so PTSD is less part of the constellation of symptoms and more to oftentimes a comorbidity. And, and the reason why, so it's the way that we, in DBT, we conceptualize emotion dysregulation is something referred to as the biosocial theory. Uh, it's a brilliant theory that was developed by Marshall Linehan, who developed DBT. And the idea here is that folks with BPD uh, have a biological predisposition 
to emotion dysregulation. They experience emotions really intensely. And then that coupled with an invalidating environment creates this transaction. And so the example that I often give to folks is, okay, let's say you're sitting with two kids and you're watching Bambi. And spoiler alert, Bambi's mother gets shot and dies. What? I know. I'm sorry. And so, like, you know, both kids are crying. One kid, you know, to your left, you know, begins to ease up and brings their attention back to the film. And the other kid keeps on crying. And you're sitting there as maybe their caretaker, and you're looking at the kid who keeps on crying. You're like, oh, it's just a movie. You know, it's okay. And the kid keeps on crying. And then you're like, you know, like, let's, you know, just watch the movie. And the kid keeps on crying. And so what happens after a while? What do you do when the kid keeps on crying? Stop crying. Exactly. And so that's sort of the invalidation. So what do you think happens when you tell that kid who's experiencing, let's say, this sadness, this fear so intensely, stop crying? What do you think happens? The next time they want to cry, they shut it down, they turn it inwards, and they find some unhealthy way of soothing themselves, hurting themselves, lashing out, suicidal ideation. So that's, so yeah, I mean, typically we see folks sort of move in two different directions and oftentimes in tandem where one, all of a sudden it's being communicated that what they're experiencing is shameful. Mm -hmm. Stop feeling this. You're too much. Stop being such a baby. And so then there are all these sort of ineffective efforts to, your point, avoid that, the emotion. Push it away. Suppress it. Yeah, the I'll, room's on fire. Just close the door. Exactly. I love that metaphor. The room's on fire. Close the door. Don't let anybody know. Close the windows. Mm-hmm. That's one option. Then the other options you know, that we see is that, well, it can escalate because to some extent, they're looking to get their needs met. So all of a sudden, it's, you know, the room's like the room's on fire, like screaming, the room's on fire. Someone help, help. And then all of a sudden, resources come to their attention. And then what ends up happening is for some folks, the only way they can get their needs met is by screaming that the house is on fire. Mm. And that's sometimes where we see, like, you know, folks engaging in really ineffective forms of communication to get their means needs met. I, I love um, describing it as that ineffective communication. I so wish that that was um, talked about more and, and labeled that way more um, rather than, you know, disparaging somebody's being mm. uh, because they they choose the wrong tool. I mean, how, how can you know to choose the right tool? If you haven't been through medical school, how the fuck do you know how to operate on yeah. what's, what's going on? It is um, in DBT. And, I, and this is where it's like DBT. It's like once you start as, a pra- as someone who is working with folks, providing DBT, it changes your life. Because now I see all behavior, including my own, it's not good or bad. I don't believe in those terms. It's whether something is effective or ineffective. Mm-hmm. And that is determined by if something is in line with your goals or they're not. Mm-hmm. And so ineffective communication is often seen as ways, you know, most everyone wants to have connection with others. They want to have loving relationships. And yet some folks, to your point, don't have the tools or skills because they haven't been taught those skills. So, you know, 
that's a lot of what we're doing in DBT. And, and when your central nervous system kicks into gear, I think you know one of the things that I can relate to um, is when I'm playing hockey, and you know, for instance, like two years ago, I was uh, playing hockey, and this guy and the other team and I, the puck goes to the other end, and we're in a race to mm-hmm. get to the puck and we're skating towards the end boards mm-hmm. which is probably the most dangerous thing that that you can do in hockey and this guy trips me as i'm like 10 feet from the boards going full speed oh. and you can easily get paralyzed when somebody does that and i was able to somehow twist my body so that my back hit the boards mm. flat still hurt like a motherfucker but i saw Red. And then he said, you took a dive. In that moment, my body was on fire. I just, all I could think about was smashing my fist into this guy's face. Mm-hmm. And, and I did, you know, I, I took, I took my <laughs> hand. He had a cage on, but I, yeah. you know, we're sitting and, and, yeah. and, and standing there. And he, here's how bad it was that his teammates came over. And we're concerned for me. And he's he's calling me, a, you know, a drama queen and et cetera. And so I just took both of my palms and I jammed him up underneath his jaw and knocked him off his feet. And it felt in that moment fucking great. Yeah. It, it was a relief. I apologized to him after the game. Whether or not he wanted to apologize to me is up to him. That's the tool that I learned in my support group. And I also learned that it's because I was scared that this guy almost, he put me at risk of being paralyzed. And so when I do apologize to people after a hockey game because we got into a fight or I talk shit with them, is it's usually because I was afraid for my physical safety or I was frustrated and I worried that I was letting my teammates down. And understanding that that was what was going on inside of me rather than this guy's a piece of shit and he's going to be my enemy for forever. That upgrade in tools helps keep me sober, helps keep me from drinking yeah. and making my my life worse. I what I love about that example is that um you're describing something that like in psychology speak we refer to as primary and secondary emotions. Right. So another example is like you're driving down, you know, a highway, someone cuts you off. You know, oftentimes what we see registered is anger. You know, you'll give that person the finger. Fuck you. And the primary emotion is that fear. Right. And so being able to recognize that primary emotion allows you to validate yourself. To be like, oh, I was experiencing fear. That fear makes sense. When we skip over that and we go straight to the secondary emotion, the anger, let's say, it can feel in the short term really good because we feel empowered. We feel in greater control. We're avoiding our sense of fear. In the long term, we're not really effectively soothing ourselves. We're not effectively sort of communicating or self-validating. And all of a sudden, anger becomes like a really sort of easy go-to avoidance it's, strategy. It's, it, that and self-righteousness are an addictive drug. Oh I mean, God, all you yes. got to do is look on Facebook and you just see people who are afraid mm-hmm. on both sides mm-hmm. that their country 
is going into this shitter mm-hmm. and they're they're not using the right tool. It's I I think of anger and shame as sort of two sides of a similar strategy. Mm-hmm. Both are a way of sort of taking control of an uncontrollable situation, feeling empowered. And it's strange to think of shame as like an empowered emotion, but hear me out. It's like it's shame is sort of this idea that, well, the reason why everything went bad is because I'm bad. The reason why, you know, things got fucked up is because I'm a shitty person mm-hmm. versus anger. The reason why things got fucked up is because they're a shitty person. Right. And in both cases, what we're actually doing is we are avoiding that primary experience of fear of grief, of sadness. For many of us, those emotions are just intolerable and it feels more comfortable to land in a place of, you know, of certainty. I know why this is wrong because either I'm bad or they're bad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to take it to take it in, especially if you've been given the glimpse of upgrading tools mm-hmm. and realize, know what it's like to be in those people's skin. And I still can be from, yeah. from time to time where I'm like, I hope that somebody takes that motherfucker out. The world would be better without them. And then I stop myself and say, you're afraid. Yeah. Your anger is certainly understandable, mm-hmm. but you are not going to feel satiated uh, in the long run by. And I and I and I think what I love that you just said is that, and I and I do want to highlight this. This is not to say that anger is never a, a sort of a primary emotion. In fact, in, in DBT, we're oftentimes we engage in a skill called like check the facts. Where we're looking to see if our emotional experience and the intensity and duration of our emotional experience fits the fact of the situation and if it's effective for our goals. In some cases, anger, for instance, if we have a goal that's being blocked in some way, then yeah, anger fits the facts. Mm-hmm. And the thing we also have to ask ourselves is the intensity of our anger fitting the facts. Are we experiencing anger because we're unwilling to allow or accept an experience right now? Um, so, I mean, uh, that all being said, I think fundamentally, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to convey here is that like being mindful of your emotional experience, really sort of tuning in with how you're feeling without judgment. In fact, with a lot of compassion and a lot of validation, and then thinking to then sort of allowing that emotion, emotional experience to be there without pushing it away or holding on to it. Like, that is the goal. Like, that's the key to emotional freedom. What are you writing your dissertation on? So it's actually one of the reasons why I'm partly out here. So I am doing an online DBT skills course uh, with a company that uh, I co-founded called Therahive, which um, we're going to be launching a acceptability study that I'm going to be doing for my dissertation and hopefully the next couple of weeks we'll start taking folks um, for the study. And then we'll hopefully launch the full course and probably in the fall. Let's look at uh, the, the game that you – kudos, by the way. Thank you. Um, the game that you uh, 
created called the called the game of life there are skills cards yes. and there are conflict cards and uh in a nutshell the gist of the game is uh a conflict card is laid out mm-hmm. and you try to pick the best skill card i do not have the stack of skill cards i'm going to try to wing it uh so uh, hit me with some conflicts and okay. I'll, and i'll try to uh come up with a skill that I I think might help. And the, the, the variety of skills you have is uh, huge, and a lot of them are new to me. So forgive me if I'm a bit primitive. In, uh, That's fine. I mean, they're all... So, so I should say that all the skills that are in the game are skills taught in DBT. Mm-hmm. And so just a little bit of context. DBT, comprehensive DBT, looks like individual weekly therapy... And then skills group. And the skills group is based around four modules of skills. uh, Mindfulness, which is the foundation of DBT. And that's like mindfulness, you know, observing and attending to the present moment without judgment. Then you have a module of what we refer to as emotion regulation skills. So these skills are oftentimes looking at sort of problem-solving skills, reducing your vulnerability to powerful negative emotions. Then we have distress tolerance skills, which are sort of skills that you use when you feel like, for instance, you know, you want to punch the shit out of someone on, you know, like the ice ring, ice ring. Um, you know, what to do when you're in a crisis. And then the last one is interpersonal effectiveness skills. So skills that you use to help communicate effectively with folks to sort of get what you want, as well as setting limits and maintaining positive relationships. So some are external, some are internal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'll read off the first conflict we have here. Congratulations. You got that job promotion you've been working toward. But now the doubt starts creeping in. Do I deserve this? Am I actually able to do this job? They're going to find out I'm an imposter. Maybe I should quit. Absolutely quit. Get on the phone, (laughs) say I can't do this, uh, and then find something to binge on Netflix and soothe yourself while you watch it. Suck your thumb. Is that the right... You know, really close. Close. Um, Oh, just just like a hair off. Yeah. Um, I mean... You know, I think for many of us, we've had this experience of being an imposter. So in this moment, when and the question that I often ask myself and the folks that I sort of work with is, you know, from a zero to a 10, like how intense is this this urge to quit, let's say? Mm-hmm. And let's say you're at like an eight or a nine. And one of the things that you said, which I love, is self-soothe. Self-soothe is a DBT skill, you know? Using your five senses to help sort of connect with your present experience so that your mind is not, you know, ruminating on your imposter syndrome and instead bringing you back to the present moment. So perfect. Then the idea is to, you know, once you're sort of down from an eight or a nine, once you're down to a six or a five, then you can maybe do some checking the facts. Am I really an imposter? Let's take a look at the sort of the history here. You know, the, the, the things I've done. The facts on the ground, as my therapist says. The facts on the ground. And then the question is, is do my, does my experience of, let's say, I'm trying to think of like what the emotion is when someone's an imposter, a feeling of shame. Does my feeling of shame fit the facts of the situation? 
Now, I often think that shame never fits the facts, but that's my own pre- personal predisposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question, if, if, if it doesn't, then we have to act opposite to it. So there's a seal called ap- uh, um, opposite action. So instead, opposite you're, action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're literally acting opposite to your emotion. So if the emotion urge it from shame is to quit, you're going to act opposite. Let's say pride. So what does pride look like? So you march in and you say, "I need to be made president." <laughs> I guess you should always consider the intensity of your pride as well. <laughs> I mean, you know. So how do you, how do you, what, what is the opposite action for uh, imposter, imposter syndrome? So how, what do you, action do you take if you feel like I got to quit before they find me out? What would you do? I mean, I like, so it's, it's so interesting because in session, it's like oftentimes I'm, you know, let's say a difficult conversation will happen and I will see all of a sudden my client, you know, just like you across from me now, you know, they're maybe they're smiling, they're not making eye contact, their mm-hmm. shoulders are beginning to hunch, they're getting smaller. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, wait, I want to pause for a second. I'm observing a change right now. What's the emotion that's coming up? Oh, it's shame. Okay. Does shame fit the facts right now? Oh, it doesn't? Okay. What what's the what's opposite to shame right now? Oh, so pride. Okay. Mm-hmm. What would it look like in this moment for you to behave prideful? Okay, sitting up straight, maintaining eye contact, speaking clearly and directly and you know loudly to me. And what we find is that when we begin to behave overtly, even if we don't entirely believe that pride is real or warranted, but when we begin to behave pridefully, we can actually begin to generate that emotional experience. And that feeling of shame will get turned down. Mm-hmm. So similarly, if you're experiencing imposter syndrome... Yeah, I think the opposite to to imposter syndrome is pride. So you maybe you call your best friend and you say, "I just got a promotion. Let's go have dinner. I want to celebrate." I I love that. That's yes, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, really celebrate your uh, your achievement. Yeah, that is opposite action. It's so interesting that that, that some of the things that you're describing, they they have different names in my support group, but one of the things we say is contrary action, and one of the other things we say is fake it till you make it. Yes. That is, I mean, here's the thing that's brilliant about DBT, is that when Marshall Linehan was creating it, she was drawing from so many different, she was drawing from Zen Buddhism, she was drawing from cognitive behavioral therapy. She was drawing from some of the 12-step stuff. All of these things she compiled and put together in the most brilliant, comprehensive, sort of tangible way. And so, yeah, there's a lot of elements that folks will probably have heard in other contexts that has a place in DBT. Yeah, and she herself uh, has... Uh... She was diagnosed B- with BPD. Diagnosed yeah. with BPD. Yeah. Sometimes I forget what the specific language is. Um, you know, it's 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 challenging because it's also changing so much. I mean, the reason, and I mentioned this at the beginning, the reason why I struggle with the diagnosis um, is that, and this is sort of goes back to the conversation you and I were having about you know, sort of shame or feeling like you are one thing. 
because then there's no opportunity to change. So to say that someone has, that their personality is fixed in some way, that their personality has this sort of chink in the armor, or it's like this one diagnosis, it's inflexible. And also, it doesn't give credence to the fact that in different situations, we all behave differently. It's all contextual. It's all dependent about who we're interacting with. We're different people in different environments. So the idea of personality, I find broadly very limiting and sort of unreal. Yeah. Hit, hit me with another conflict. All right. Uh, <laughs> climate change is real. The globe is warming. Life as we know it will never be the same. Oh, man, that one hits home. That one really hits home. Um, and honestly, some of the tools that I use, I'm grateful that I don't have children. I think about that. I'm grateful that I'm beyond middle age. Um, I don't know if those are healthy or not, but I do, I do practice acceptance around that while also taking personal responsibility for my carbon footprint. I have solar, I I have, uh, uh, a hybrid, um, and I, and I, you know, I vote and I feel like, you know, short of, you know, maybe joining some cause and volunteering for it, which I feel a little guilt around not doing those, those are my tools for dealing with that. I, I would, I think those are like the tools, right? Like the first thing I think of is acceptance. Um, and, and here's the thing about acceptance, which is tricky, is that sometimes when folks hear the word acceptance, they're like, well, isn't acceptance approval? Isn't acceptance like, oh, I'm okay with this? And I sort of want to make it very clear. Right, and it doesn't mean you're not going to do anything about it. Exactly. You're staying out of the results. The only way we can take effective action, the only way we can make effective change is if we are radically accepting the moment as it is, which means attending to the facts as it is, without avoiding it, without putting our head in the sand, to really being open to what's happening in this present moment, which is incredibly hard. And it's important because I know for a lot of folks when they hear acceptance, it's like, oh, it it means that I just have to give up and approve. I'm rolling over. Exactly. And no, I really want to highlight that acceptance means, in fact, it's it's the foundation for being effective because we can't be effective if we are denying the facts of the situation. So I, I love that you said acceptance. And then the other thing that you described, which sort of falls within like there's DBT skills called like building mastery, um, which is about engaging in behaviors that, you know, move you towards your values. If you're someone that values the health, the well-being of our planet and those on our planet, then engaging in, you know, you know, politic politics around climate change, doing all that you can to help reduce sort of your footprint, like those are ways of building personal mastery and feeling like you're contributing in some way, however small that is, and it's important. Another thing that I try to do is when I feel rage at someone or a group of people is I ask myself, where is my hypocrisy? Have I ever done what I'm mad at them for Hmm. or some version of it? And the answer is almost yes. And that doesn't mean that 
you know, that, that I'm letting them off the hook or turning my back on an issue. But I'm tr- in the moment, I'm trying to dissipate my rage because it, it, I don't need that much rage to be motivated. Yes. And this is where, you know, I, I think so right now I feel like DBT is sort of really be, like entering the zeitgeist. And I think for a kind of specific reason, I think we live in a time in which everything is so polarized, where it's so easy to vilify and demonize another group, person, political party, country, etc. And in sort of dialectical philosophy, our goal is always to look at the gray, to move away from polarization, find the grain of truth in another's experience, and then arrive at a synthesis, a new way of looking at our reality, our experience. And so what that means is letting go of terms like good and bad. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, trying to what you're saying, like, and this is sort of going back to the conversation that we were having earlier about, you know, fo- like, you know, manipulative, not manipulative, just understanding that everyone, even if we disagree with their behaviors and their actions, everyone is doing the best they can. It's really hard to think that because people are doing some pretty fucked up things. Yeah. And everyone is doing the best they can. Doesn't mean that you have to, you know, not hold people accountable. Doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. But it's, you know, it, it dissipates the intensity of that anger. Right. We don't need all that rage. That rage, we, we carry that around and it's just going to suffocate us. Yeah. It's so hard, though, uh, you know, when you see people and their, their toolkit is, you know, a, a bomb and a chainsaw. And it's like, man, you are making things worse. It's so hard to have compassion for them. Um, and, and that's where I have to go back to um, when all I had was a bomb and a chainsaw and beer. Mhm. It is it's one of the reasons why I find working with folks with emotion dysregulation to be so sort of life-changing cuz when you're living in hell you understand what it looks like for other folks to live in hell. Yeah. You know? It's like that compassion is really there. You see it. And if you're walking around with a, a bomb and a, I forget the term, chainsaw. The other, a chainsaw, like, that's suffering, right? Yeah. And, well, again, you, might, you don't have to agree with the tools, but to recognize that suffering in someone else, all of a sudden, all that rage that you have towards that person, you can let go of that a little bit. And then you can be more effective, perhaps, in communicating with mm-hmm. them, or you can be more effective in engaging the type of things, the type of values that are important to you, and without all of your attention being focused on how much you hate that person. Right. And it, destroying them in a conversation so that yes. you can feel like a victor. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to be married in uh, the, one of the first healthy tools that I developed and I'd been married for maybe 15 years mm. at that point, mm-hmm. was to just start with saying, I'm angry and I don't know why I want to put my fist through a wall mm-hmm. right now. And it, while it felt like I was still sitting on, on a volcano trying to keep the lava from coming up, 
a little bit of it did get let out just by saying that. And I think it also allowed my wife at the time to move towards me rather than me backing her into a situation by saying, you always do this, you're this, you're that. Just, But I didn't even know what I was feeling other than anger. I didn't, I didn't know that was a secondary emotion. I didn't know underneath that was fear, sadness, uh, you know, isolation, etc., etc. I mean, I, I will say that identifying, even if, like, even identifying that one emotion in that moment. So in DBT, we have, like, the mindfulness skills, which, like, are observe and describe. And we know all the evidence points that when people are taking a moment, a pause to observe and describe their emotional experience, um, it decreases the intensity. Mm-hmm. It offers you as an opportunity that instead of acting on that emotion, you're actually observing it and you're stepping yes. back, which is incredible. That's, that's huge. Huge. It's huge. Um, and from there, listen, like, you know, you might not be able to sort of excavate and get to like what the, mm-hmm. and what you have done is now giving yourself an infinite w- number of ways of acting because you're pausing. And sometimes all we need is that pause. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that pause is the difference between just, you know... Jail and no jail. <laughs> yes. It, it, is, it is... That pause is... That's, 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 that's the shit. Yes. Like, that's the stuff. The other thing I've discovered in, in doing describing my emotions, uh, especially when I'm confused by them, mm-hmm. is I feel a little bit of self-love because of that objectivity that I have in that moment... I can see myself almost as if I would see a friend. And, you know, we talk on this podcast a lot about self-love and self-care. And I think it's one of the most nebulous Mm -hmm. ideas, Mm self-love, how to get there. And, you know, as you know, there's no one way to get there. But identifying what we're feeling in the moment and speaking our truth is one of the kindest things that we can do for ourselves because i think if we're not doing that we may not know that we're suffering we'll just think i'm angry and we don't tend to think of anger as suffering one of the biggest parts of what i do as a clinician and what i do as a person and what i try to get the clients I work with to do is self-validate to say in that moment, Oh, it makes sense why I feel this way. Given what's happening right now, given my history. Oh, I'm feeling anger. Okay. I get why I'm feeling anger. And I understand that as an act of self-love as you just described it, because what we're communicating to ourselves in that motion, in that moment is that what we're feeling isn't wrong. It isn't shameful. We're not bad for feeling it. And we're giving ourselves, we're just holding it. We're just recognizing it. And I think that one of like the biggest things that I can do as a clinician is, you know, when I see my client in hell, to take, those, take that ladder down there and just sit with them. Just be with them. And that's just validation. Just, you know what? You're in hell. I'm going to sit with you here. I'm just going to recognize that right now things are shit. And I think that is one of the most profound forms of compassion, love, yeah. and caring that we can offer ourselves and others. Yeah. 
because I think a lot of times we want to go, we want to try to change what they're feeling, which just is so invalidating, you know? Well, look at all the good things you have in your life. And not that there's never a time for you to reflect the good things somebody has in their life back to them. Um, it's just sometimes that is the terrible tool. So what you are describing right now are is the dialectical strategies that I employ when I'm working with a client, which is change and acceptance. And I'm constantly playing with those two tools, validating where a client's experience is, and then nudging towards change. And it's always sort of this bounce. It's a dance. Okay, like let's sort of, let's be where we are at. Let's recognize. Let's diffuse that shame and just sort of offer yourself some compassion. Okay, now that we've done that, what can we do? What can we do to make your to help you move towards your goals? The most compassionate thing I can do as a clinician is help a client achieve their goals. Did you grow up with someone in your life having the characteristics of BPD? What what drew you towards um, this like population? Um, if if anything, yeah, no, it's 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 something that I think a lot about. Um, you know, I I arrived to grad school later, like I started when I was thirty five, and I sort of. When I came, I didn't know about DBT, but what I did know is that I wanted to work with folks that were suffering. I wanted to work with folks that really were living in hell. Um, Because I felt like it was a time in which just everything felt like it was falling apart and things still at times feel like they're falling apart. And I just wanted to be there for it. Mm. I I just wanted to be with folks who were really suffering. And because DBT was created for folks who are chronically engaging in suicidal behaviors and uh, non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors. That is the population that I was drawn to. I mm-hmm. wanted to help those folks. Well, kudos on all the, the work you're doing, uh, Jesse. You. If people want to know more about you or uh, buy The Game of Life or find the new uh, thing that you're working yeah. on with uh, TheraHive. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So, um, you know, you can find me on uh, Instagram at talkisgood. Um, also, my website, talkgood.org. And then it's uh, therahive.com. And also... Um, in collaboration with my mentor and research advisor, Dr. Shreen Rizvi, we've created a series of animated DBT videos. Oh, that's awesome. Which are a lot of fun. And you can find those on YouTube slash DBTRU. Uh, DBTRU. So Rutgers University, DBTRU. Oh, okay. okay, cool. Jesse, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Jesse and to Gracie for shaking and making noises throughout almost the entire episode. I appreciate that, Gracie. Thank you for for chipping in where you can. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Before I dive into uh, some surveys, uh, I forget to mention sometimes that, uh, that we need financial support on the podcast and that there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. You can do one-time donations, uh, and the links to all this are on our website, metalpod.com. You can do one-time donations through PayPal, or uh, you can do a recurring monthly donation through either PayPal or Patreon. But I recommend Patreon because, first of all, the interface is way better. Not a fan of PayPal. Um, And with Patreon, um, you can get bonus stuff uh, occasionally. I'm not the best at uh, keeping that stream of bonus stuff going, but um, it it does help the podcast, and um, Patreon donations uh, have been uh, declining a bit, got me a little worried, so I thought I'd put that out there at the risk of being a burden, being disliked, having you abandon me because I'm needy. Anyway, um, let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Fears Survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself, sorry, I can't up, can't come up with something witty as I'm too hungover even two days afterwards. Wow, you must have tied one on. Uh, to the question, share something you fear, he writes, I fear that my inability to stop binge drinking is going to end up with me dead or in prison. I fear that all my family and friends will shun me and want nothing to do with me ever again for bringing such disgrace upon them. I fear that I wouldn't last a day in prison and would end up dead anyway. I hate myself so much for days after a binge, and I'm consumed with so much guilt, dread, and shame, in the parentheses, the Holy Trinity, exclamation park, point, that I can barely function. I can't work, get to college, or anything. Just lie in bed all day and wish that I could just stay asleep and not wake up, as then, at least, I wouldn't be tempted to drink. I fear that I'll never amount to anything and die alone because of my problems with alcohol and that I've hurt people I care about because of my fucking selfishness. Well, first of all, thank you for filling that out. And I want to send you a hug and some love and let you know that you are not alone, buddy, because I have been in that place. And it is a sick, sad cycle to be stuck in. You know, it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like depression. You know, one of the one of the hallmarks of depression is that you have difficulty getting motivated to do anything or or to make decisions. And being caught in the spiral of shame and numbing with alcohol or drugs is it's so hard to break out of. And a lot of us do die. A lot of us never ask for help. We stay in self pity and fear and you know you said my fucking selfishness yes selfishness fear resentment emotional immaturity those things are all a part of untreated alcoholism but if you really are an alcoholic 
you are most likely powerless to change those aspects of your personality without getting sober. And I had to ask for help. I needed a community of support. I need people to suggest daily activities for me to do, things to read, things to journal about, to begin to replace the alcohol and the drugs, to find moments of peace that could give me then clarity about my selfishness and the momentum to actually do something about it. You are not a bad person. You are a sick person, and there are ways to get healthy. But it's not going to happen by yourself. And some people might disagree with me. But that's my experience. And so don't give up. This is from the love survey filled out by Searching for Happy Rain. And they write, I love the feeling of cracking my back in the morning. I love it when I'm eating a meal and not thinking about the calories. I love it when my mom holds me tight in her arms and I cry about my anxiety and OCD, which I suffer from daily. I love it when I run to hug my best friend and realize that I have a person in my life that truly understands every piece of me. I love cooking for my brother and seeing his happy face when he bites into his meal. I love starting a new book and spelling the first pages. That's a great one. And I love listening to your podcast every night, which oddly is the only thing that helps me fall asleep, although I have insomnia. I'm going to take that positively. I'm going to take that that it relaxes you rather than it bores you. Thank you for that survey. Those were beautiful. This is uh, the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Geo. He identifies as gay. He's in his 20s and was raised, uh, he says, in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, he was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I was friends with an older kid in middle school. Over the summer, he invited me to go to camp with him. We ended up staying with some of his relatives for the duration of the camp, and we shared a bed, and he coerced me into giving him fellatio. It only happened uh, the one night, but it was so difficult for me to cope with that I blocked it and painfully uncovered the memory rather traumatically when I ran into the perpetrator at my high school. When I opened up to someone about the incident who I thought was a close friend, they told everyone in my class that I was gay, which resulted in bullying. Oh, fuck. It's amazing how the trauma can just be a series of dominoes of even as shitty or sometimes even shittier things. Uh, darkest thoughts. How I would kill those around me. Dis- dissecting things around me. Pets, people, etc. Jumping off high buildings. Intentionally crashing my car. Darkest secrets, not comfortable sharing. Uh, Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Uh, Oral domination slash, uh, and this is in parentheses, gag the fag. Um, Also genuine romance. Uh, I feel rather disgusted sharing the first one. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, I wish to overcome my inner demons and make something meaningful out of my life instead of feeding into a vicious, self-destructive cycle. I know there's so much more for me. I also want to be openly gay without the fear of losing the relationship with my family. Have you shared these things with others? No. 
if not why, afraid of judgment. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxious. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are bigger than what you've been through. You don't have to live your life controlled by your tormentors any longer. Thank you so much for for filling that out, Gio. And I'm sorry that you went through what you went through. And I'm really sorry that you are in a place where you feel isolated, alone, and judged. And I really hope that you can find your people, man. It's so much easier to find our people than to change the people that we have. This is from the love survey filled out by Charlie Seahorse, and they write, I really, uh, I love really weird pop music and hard style technico that is so hype, you feel like an alien sex room from Planet Rave. <laughs> I love hibiscus tea. I drink almost a liter of it every single day, and it feels like it nourishes my blood. I love almost all red fruits, cherries especially. I'm not particularly religious, but when I get to pick and eat a sun-warmed ripe strawberry from the dirt, I really feel like some kind of god engineered the experience for the sheer delight of existence, and I'm just along for the ride. And I love my own dumb ass. Winky smile. What do you call that? The smile with the with the one eye winking. Winky? Smiley winky? Winky dinky? Those are awesome. And I do. I also love cherries. It's amazing how some cherries can be have like no flavor, and then other cherries are just mind blowing. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Neverland Nancy, and she identifies as straight. She's in her thirties. Um, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, did I say uh, she identifies as straight? Yes, I did. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My dad used to get drunk and masturbate besides, beside my bed. This started around age five to six and continued until about age nine. Sometimes he would pass out naked in the bed beside me. If my mom wasn't home, he would watch porn on the living room TV and invite me to watch. He kept his magazines in my bathroom, and his tastes were pretty hardcore for the early 80s. If there was penetration, I blocked it out. I can't possibly handle it being any worse than what it was. Oh my God, it is so awful. Sometimes I feel like I unnecessarily comment on these things. Because it's like, those of you that heard me reading that, of course it's awful. But I feel like... I don't know, this this weird part of my brain is like, if I don't comment on it, you'll think, oh, I guess you think that's okay. <laughs> Can you hear my stomach chiming in? Uh, she has been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my last husband was an erotic photographer. Imagine that. He started choking me out six weeks after our son was born. He accused me of fucking anyone I made eye contact with. Men, women, old, young, didn't matter. He accused me of wanting to fuck our son when he was 18 months old. I wasn't allowed to wear shorts or tank tops, go places with friends, have Facebook. He would cheat with his models, and when I would confront him, he would fly into a rage. 
spit and scream in my face, yank me around by my hair, choke me, drag me on my knees. I left him when I came home from work one day to see multiple bottles of bleach and a rug rolled out into the woods. I have no idea what that means, but it I, I pondered that one for a, a minute or so, and then I thought, does that mean he tried to bleach the rug because there was probably blood stains? Uh, he ended up taking everything that mattered in my life away from me. I'm just now learning to live with it and to be happy again. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? It's hard when it's your dad. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Fucking strangers, like groups. My dad liked gangbang-type porn, so I gravitate towards that. More women, not just me. What are your deepest, darkest secrets? I guess where I was exposed to porn so young, I started masturbating when I was four. I can give myself multiple orgasms as a 38-year-old woman with the same technique I used at four. Um, I think we kind of covered this one, but sexual fantasies most powerful to you, group sex. Uh, sharing that, I feel half relief and half shame, like a re-shame addressing all this creepy shit. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm more fucked up than you can imagine. What, if anything, do you wish for? Inner peace and forgiveness. Have you shared these things with others? No, never, ever. How do you feel after writing these things down? Creepy. You are not creepy. What happened to you was fucking creepy and horrifying. But you sound like like a human being reacting how any human being would react to what happened to them. This is from the love survey filled out by Kevbo. And they write, I love it when mist over a lake or pond is just about to disappear and it dances in the light. I love when there's snow on the ground, but you can hear the spring peepers, in parentheses, frogs, letting you know spring is almost here. I love when my youngest niece mispronounces my name. Oh, I love this next one. The smell of puppies. They do have a certain smell. And puppy breath, too. Uh, All the smells of springtime. Those were awesome. Thank you for those. And then this is uh, our last survey, and this is from the Back in Time survey, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Mental Fairy, also known as Gia. And she writes, I would go back to the moment when my attacker made me lay face down on his bed in our home with a tea towel wrapped around my head while he assaulted me. I would say to myself that I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to grow from this, and I'm going to recognize others who have been subject subjected to this when I begin my life in the medical field. I will know without words. I will know with a look, and I will know with a deep-seated intuition that this patient before me has also been subjected to such trauma. I will hurt, I will gather shame, and I will hate myself, but eventually I will learn to truly love myself and others when I'm 40. Until then, it's a shit show, but you, you six-year-old little girl, will become a tomboy so boys won't be attracted to you. You will battle with self-confidence and you will almost die a couple of times, but you will bloom once you find mental health, mental illness happy hour, and gain the confidence to reach out for help. 
You will make amazing contacts on the forum, and you will teach your one and only son how to feel his emotions because someone robbed you of yours. Hold on to the ugly, disgusting bedsheet in the dark world and fight off the memories till then. You will love eventually. Wow. Wow. That is, that is like a lifetime packed into a paragraph, just distilled. That is recovery. That is fucking recovery, turning trauma into purpose. Thank you so much for filling that out and, and kudos on your recovery. And thanks for the reminder that uh, about the people in the forum. There's, there's some really great people, some, uh, a lot of great threads on a variety of topics. And um, Manny Mo, who's been a listener of the podcast for a long, long time, helps keep the forum uh, going. And um, wow, that just touched me so much, that what you wrote on... Hope to see some of you guys uh, in, uh, in Minneapolis this weekend. And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.